you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, my friends, welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You are in for a treat during this episode. Although to ultimately get to that part of the story, we're going to have to go through some difficulties and challenges in our guest story, and she's not alone in them. Did you know that in the United States, one in every four women and one in every seven men will be abused during their lifetime. Growing up in the Caribbean island of Trinidad, Laverne Gordon watched as her father brutally abused her mother and her older siblings. While watching this abuse take place in her family, she promised herself that she would get out of the situation. She would leave home. She would choose a different path than her mother, and she would never fall into an abusive relationship. After migrating to the United States as a young adult, Laverne never expected to find herself in her own abusive relationship. Today, Laverne has risen above the ashes of domestic violence and now investing her life in helping others thrive after leaving toxic situations through her Love Life Now Foundation. With strength and with positivity, with her faithfulness, with perseverance, with her unique blend of humor and toughness. Laverne is going to join us today to share her journey with the rest of us. My friends, I love this woman's heart. I love her story. And I think today, after you hear it, you are going to love it too. Whether you are a survivor of trauma, you want to support those in need, or you're simply looking for an incredible story of rising above the challenges and soaring in life. This life-giving, hope-filled conversation is for you. Yes, you. So I invite you right now to turn that podcast dial up a little bit louder. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Get ready to take some notes as I bring on my friend, and now yours, her name, is Laverne Gordon. Laverne, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you so much. Uh, well, as you and I were recording right before we went live, I appreciate you, what you do, your backstory, your resiliency, your faithfulness, your joyfulness, in spite of what you've seen and witnessed and been part of. For those who have not yet read the legacy he left me or followed you or know about your, your work today, 
if I were to meet you in a grocery store, just kind of have this random interaction, and I said, oh, Laverne, tell me about you. What, what do you do professionally? How would you answer that? Yeah, so I would say that my life has been dedicated to the work around domestic violence awareness and that you could get a glimpse into every facet of what of the why behind the work if you visited our website lovelifenow.org or even decided to take a look at the book The Legacy He Left Me. And that's my 1 minute elevator pitch uh every single time. Uh, because folks get it as soon as they take any one of those actions or those steps. The book is how I first came to know you. And then I've listened to some of your work afterwards. And I'm struck by the cover of the book. For, for our listeners and some of our viewers online, describe what the front of the legacy he left me looks like. It really is. And what the publisher wanted to do was give a a honest insight into what this issue particularly looks like for victims and or survivors that may be in your midst and you may not know. So on one side of, I am on the cover in a very bright one-shouldered yellow dress and a big splash of fluffiness on the side of my shoulder. Um, and that, uh, that same side that has that big fluff that side of my face looks perfect. Yeah. It looks like what society says we're supposed to do when we've experienced any sort of trauma. We're supposed to pick ourselves back up and walk on and present like everything is okay. On the other half, the, where my shoulder is bare, um, it is bruised, it is battered. And that other half of my face has a really distinct bruise around my eye and my forehead, um, my eyebrow area. There's a cut on my lip. And it looks really intensely battered, like I have just been beaten to a pulp. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, victims that go through this issue, survivors that have sustained this issue, they walk around with scarring, whether it be physical or internal. And that's what we wanted to show is that even though scars are not visible on the other half of my face, and I present very well, those internal scars that we carry underneath exist no matter whether or not you've been through domestic violence, molestation, any sort of trauma, um, mm. rape, sexual assault, right? It, it, these things exist underneath and we're walking around like everything is okay. And they really, quite often, physical scars, like what's on the other half of my face, they heal uh, yeah. over a period of time, but internal scars they really, they either stick the longest with us or they never go away. We simply man, we find ways to manage how to deal with that, those scars um, over time. And so, yeah, that was the intent behind the book is to really show that we are two people at any given point um, based on what our past experiences have been. It's powerful. It, it's gripping. It forces you to turn to page one and then the content within it has you read all the way until the very end. So it's that story that I'm excited and um, feeling almost apprehension because it's such a difficult story. It ends brilliantly. Right. So I'm just going to encourage our listeners, hang on for it. But th right. this, this is a difficult story. So we're going to, we're just going to step into it slowly. How about there's a character you introduced us to in the very front side. It is your father. We're going to learn a lot more about your dad as you progress through the story, but at his best, 
at the very best of your dad, describe your dad for, uh, as you witnessed him growing up at the very best of who he was. At the very best, John, he was charming. He was articulate. He was well-read. Uh, he was college educated. Uh, he really could hold conversations with the guy at the top down to the guy at the bottom and relate to each of and every one of them in their own unique way. And I, I admired that at the core. I wanted to, I wanted to yeah. be that. I wanted to emulate the things that he did. He had a great job with the Department of Labor where I lived in Trinidad and uh, he provided. He mm. was a great provider. Let me preface that. He provided and was a great provider for the things that he thought that were um, relevant, needed yes. for us as children. Yeah. At age 19, this is long before you show up in the picture, at age 19, he meets a beautiful, striking woman named Jennifer Samuel. T talk about Jennifer. Jennifer, my mom. My mom um, was 19 when she met our father, and uh, she was a model, uh, again, in Trinidad. Uh, department stores would hire her to model their clothing. She ended up in, you know, newspapers um, doing said modeling. She was, a, as you say, a striking, beautiful woman yeah. with a physique that would be admired by many. And uh, my father obviously was attracted to that. They fell in love hard and fast at 19 and got married very shortly thereafter. They are living life on this beautiful island nation. Five children show up in their lives. The middle one is the one I'm having a conversation with today. You. I hear. Cool to have you on. All in, baby. Up in the States now, but you grew up down there. Talk about what childhood was like. Not, not what your parents were like, but what was island life like for you? Many of our listeners don't know this. Trinidad, I will preface by saying it is the most business focused out of all the islands in the Caribbean. We're not super heavily focused on tourism, although Carnival is the biggest tourist attraction on the island. We are more focus driven. It's the largest exporter of oil from the from the Caribbean to the U.S., you know, but still, you know, possesses all of the things that a beautiful island would. We're just above Venezuela to give you sort of a geo geographical sense, the last island going down that in South America. And so we lived in the very ghetto of Trinidad and directly next to the, the capital port of Spain. A lot of what we, you know, what was around us was a lot of, you know, violence, not just in our house, but in, in different households. But that's, we still acted as a loving community. So, you know, if we went outside, our parents were gone to the market or to the store on any given Saturday, we never went hungry, right? Even if they were running behind because there were fruit trees in everybody's yard. So you could go to the mango tree and the the, the pear tree and the, the cherry tree, and you would make a, a meal out of what you had in your backyard. Mm. Kids would gather around and play and you know, just was something that I, to this day, I never forgot. And something that I truly do miss is that sense of community. Even if you didn't have something in your kitchen, you could go to a neighbor's window and get it, right? On, on borrowed because you would barter, um, you know, uh, grocery items for for things that you might not have. And, and, and I think that's what was one of the biggest things that I took away from the community that I lived in was the fact that, you know, everybody looked out for each other. 
And I, that, I'm sure that's not unlike um, many communities where other people grew up. Um, and so it was the same. We didn't have a lot of beach time. You know, our, our father was very strict. And so he really focused on getting us educated, uh, making sure that that was the primary goal. So not a whole lot of extracurricular activities that I could lean in on. Mm -hmm. But he did allow me, the middle child, um, to venture off into different parts of the island where my where my family lived and to be able to visit them and uh, to be able to, to to see a different lifestyle than what, where we lived. So I took that with me when I migrated to the States, those experiences where I did understand that even though we weren't getting hugs in our home or saying, I love you in our homes, we were able to, I was able to experience that with my, my cousins, their family, right? And see that where I lived that wasn't the only thing that existed. There was life beyond the walls of the community that I lived in. I asked you the best part of your father. Yeah. And you went on and you, you, you painted this picture of an awesome, beautiful father, husband, leader in the community. Almost like your book has two sides to the story, though. Your father certainly had two sides to the way he presented at his worst Talk about what life was like growing up as as the daughter of this man. Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, I was the middle child. They had uh, two children, my oldest brother and my oldest sister, who were two years apart. Then there was a seven-year gap, and then I came, and then my brother was two years apart from my, myself, and then a big gap, and then our youngest brother came, so that made up the five. And so watching my old, my two oldest siblings, I saw the disdain and the, this, you know, discomfort that my father had with my two oldest siblings, where... He primarily was so disenchanted with the things that they did. Things, typical things that children would do, right? Not picking up their books sometimes and right. being a little lackadaisical in the community. Um, I realized that he wanted more of them. And when he didn't get more of them, he would physically beat them, um, which is what he thought was at an appropriate level of discipline, but it was really child abuse. And so I saw this coming up. And primarily then said to myself that I wanted nothing like what they were experiencing. I did not want um, any of the physical beatings that they were getting. So I did my best to try to circumvent what was happening to them that could potentially happen to me. And so I got the good grades and I got, you know, made sure that I was mannerly and I got, I made sure that, you know, I was well-respected around the neighborhood. So that meant that I was, again, afforded opportunities that they weren't. Yes. Um, and he, he, although he never commented or physically said, good job, or I knew the smile, the smirk, the, the, that thing that I had yearned for, I had yearned more for of, um, he was giving it to me in his own way. And so watching him physically beat our, our siblings and not just them, but my mother who received the brunt of the abuse physically, verbally, and emotionally, she essentially is the one that I watched many times over, um, get these repeated attacks and felt like, gosh, is this ever going to end? Or at the very least, um, gosh, when is this, this is happening now? I could sense that this is going to happen based on his behavior. Um, and when is it going to stop? Um, as a child witness, brutal beatings that she would receive, I often said to myself, well, why doesn't she just pick up and, and leave? Yeah. I, I put the onus on her, the victim, right? As a child, not understanding that this was all him. She could have done nothing to warrant the amount of abuse that she endured. 
And I always said that that would never be me. You know, again, the onus on her. I'm, I'm looking at her lack of lack of respect as a woman in my head, right? Six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm saying to myself, why don't you just stay gone when you go? Not understanding that leaving was never that black and white. Mm. Um, you know, why doesn't she just pick us up and, and, and take us and go and stay gone, right? Sometimes she did do that, but we would always return. And so I didn't understand those dynamics as a child. It wasn't until much later that I started understanding what this issue entailed that I, I completely understood the why behind it. Um, and, 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 and why that should not have ever been um, my questioning of her. It should have always uh, been the, the onus on him. Yeah. And I want to come back to the why, because you're going to have your own experience here um, in the United States. But before you get yeah. there, you're witnessing the abuse that your older siblings are, are enduring. You're witnessing your, eventually 32 years of abuse that your mother is going to experience at his hands and, and um, through his life. But you're not the only one experiencing this. One thing that confused me, and I'm sure this happens in many communities, not just yours, is where is the community? You mentioned mm. earlier about the neighbors looking out for one another and love and yeah. we had each other's back. Like, okay, so now there's yelling and there's hating and there's bruising and there's tears mm. and there's abuse, clearly. Yes. And people know. So where were the neighbors? Yeah, so this, I was born in 77, John, um, but I really knew myself in the 80s. And at that time, domestic violence was not even a term that was coined yet in that part of the world. Um, so we knew that this thing was going on. We knew that this thing was bad in many homes and communities, but nobody had uh, a pinpoint of, of, of what it really entailed. And essentially they looked at it as only a physical thing. So that's one. You don't even recognize or 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 lend empathy to the verbal, the emotional um, uh, parts of abuse. Right. You only knew that if you heard a ruckus that she's getting beat because she probably did something wrong. She's getting beat because he's mad about something. She's getting beat because she wouldn't listen, right? So again, always the onus. And despite that it's happening in your house and other people's homes, the attitude then was that that's their business. She's is um, is staying there because she likes the beatings. She's staying there because um, she she has nowhere else to go, and that's her business. Because I that I wouldn't let that happen to me, even though it's happening to them. Um, it was almost like this far removed thing um, yeah. that others could not connect to. When it came to men, because I just talked about the women. When it came to men who heard the ruckus, well. My father, who was charming, articulate, and all those things, and related to the guy here and the guy at the bottom and at the top, um, he was friends with with everybody else, all the onlookers. And even though they also loved my mother, I think the the the, the relationship that they had was more important than intervening in another man's um, household. Because guess what? Some of them also were doing the same thing in their house. So how could you, I, and again, I'm speaking from to, about folks then, how could they then intervene in something that they either condone? Yes. Okay. Or so, 
even though they want to help, can't because they're too afraid that that relationship that they have on the outskirts of that, because otherwise he's a great guy, right? Outside of all the drama that he's causing in the ruckus in his house, he's a great guy. I hang with him every day. We, we, we talk about stuff in the newspaper every day. We walk down the street to catch the, you know, the, the, the bus every day, you know, all everything else is great. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to cost him. And then at the very core, some were afraid, right? If I intervene, maybe I get hurt. There were, I were few times that, and I can count them on my hands, as I said, few, that somebody in the neighborhood who had a telephone, again, this is the 80s. So if you have a phone, you're rich, right? <laughs> and the ghetto, right? And so if someone heard the ruckus and they called the police, the police sometimes did show up, right. but they were of no help. Again, domestic violence wasn't taken as a crime. Then um, they would show up and speak to the head of the household or the person in charge, usually the man. Um, and where you have, again, my father, who is very articulate and can talk his way around anything, um, um, would come out to the front and say, you know, you know, she's just acting up and, you know, I, I don't know why they called I, you know, and then the police's response would be, well, that's a husband and wife thing. You make sure you patch that up. Don't make us have to come back here again. And they'd go. So my faith in the reaction of police and authority, it dwindled a lot over the years. Even if I felt like I wanted to tell a teacher something about what was happening at home. There was no way that I was ever going to do that because I saw what the police would do. I saw what the people in charge who could arrest my father and put him behind bars for good could potentially do. And it was nothing. So um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was the community response back then. Difficult to hear. You yeah. know, like the, the people responsible for providing safety and hope were the ones who said, hey, let's not do that again. And then they get yeah. back. That, that, that is hard. One thing that also surprised me is that a father as controlling as yours was allowed you to eventually leave study in the United States, which is remarkable in and of itself, but eventually allow you, your younger siblings and your mom to leave and to go up to the United States to live. Talk about just talk about that, because I'm surprised a man who uh, controlled everything allowed his wife to leave. Yeah. So for me, I initially was allowed to leave. As I said, I think he saw outside of uh, all my other siblings, I think he saw so much potential um, in me uh, because I had presented what I think he wanted to see over the years. He really believed and once the question was posed to him by my grandparents, who had, my mom's parents who had lived in the States since the 70s, um, they also saw the potential. I would write them many times over to tell them that I was doing good. And because right. I always had this attitude that if I present well, things would go well for me. And, you know, uh, that's what I did with my grandparents as well. So I would write them letters and say that, you know, one day I hope to visit the United States and, and make you guys proud and make my parents proud. And, um, you know, they heard that enough that they, 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 they essentially wrote a letter to our father um, asking if he would allow me to come finish high school there because they, would, they believed, obviously, there was much more opportunity for me to succeed in doing that. And I think that's why he allowed that, because if they believed in me and he already believed in me, then why not? My migrating to the States initially was because of that. But then once my three years in high school were, were up, I was out there on a student, out here on a student visa. I had right. to go back for two more years to get our permanent, my permanent residency at the time. 
over all those years and leading up to that, my father obviously would never have let our mother. He burned her passport. Um, he he burned a letter uh, from her parents saying one day heard about the abuse that she was enduring. Um, you know, the letter that that was written to her that he got a hold of before she did and read. He waited till she, she came home and told her that um, you're never going to you're never going to leave. I you know, I own you basically. Right. So don't ever think about it. Right. So I think over the, the, the next set of years leading up to that point where I left, I think my father had the sense that, you know, he had all of the power and control that he could ever have and that you know there was never any way that she was ever going to leave or he that he was going to let her leave however um by the time i returned um for the couple years i was now 18 my my older siblings are much older my younger siblings are also older uh three boys and two girls the girl had a, the oldest girl had already left and i remained and uh, the three boys were left behind and we all were not standing for our father to put our, his hands on our mother. Um, we had all gotten to a point where we were fed up. We had reached our breaking point as children watching this happen to her and rebelled in our own way. We had to stand up for our mother for him to see that his level of power and control with her also was dwindling and we weren't standing for it. And so over the next couple of years, I think he realized that he understood that the way that he could be with her before was no more no. Um, in full in full force, because obviously if we weren't around the physical and or the verbal happened, but if we were, that wasn't happening. And so I think by the time of that, the end of that two years, once her, not only my permanent residency status came through, but hers as well, along with my two younger siblings, he said, okay, all right, just, just go. Um, he had picked up with another woman and, you know, it just was this outside affair. And, you know, I think he was making room for, you know, sort of this, this next phase of life secretly. So you mom, siblings, then hop on a flight, join us in the United States, move up to the New England area, go through school, get a job. And I know we're accelerating through your life, but we, I want to make sure we're able to tell some of the, the, the key pieces. Mm-hmm. You meet a guy and you've referred to him as Guy. What, what was it about Guy that you uh, become smitten with? So Guy, I think, emulated a lot of the traits that my father embodied. He, again, was articulate, well-spoken. The dates that we eventually started going on were, were lavish. It was the, I think it was a level of attention that I had never experienced in any relationship prior. I was enamored with it. I mean, for the first three months of that dating relationship, it was like something out of a Hallmark movie. And I essentially was like, oh my God, like why me? Like I've never gone through this before. And I think because of that, even though there were things there that were glaring in the beginning, I dismissed it all because there were things even more that I wanted to last um, because I, I thought, you know, lightning, lightning wasn't going to strike twice. There's, there was never going to be anyone else like it. When you meet somebody mm-hmm. like that and you've never experienced those things, I think, you know, when you're in these relationships, you begin to believe that, um, you know, this is it um, on many levels and that, you know, you, you don't want to let it go. You want to hold on to it as much as you can at any cost. You, you saw whispers of jealousy 
and he trying to be extraordinarily controlling over you and your life and your phone and everything else. When was the first time though you recognized that this wasn't just uh, a jealous guy, but um, a physically violent guy, a controlling guy? Mm. It was the first time that he slapped me. And um, I remember him being very irate over a phone call that particular morning um, when I decided to stay home. I had su started suffering from allergies, something that I'd never experienced before, but it felt like a really bad cold. So I called my office and told him that I wouldn't be in. And he, um, you know, I didn't call him, which is something, a, a big red flag. He, he would call me three, four, five, six times before I even got to my office. And in me thinking that it was, you know, oh my gosh, he cares about me so much. He wants to make sure I'm okay. When in reality, it was him keeping tabs on me, making sure mm -hmm. I was where I said I was going to be. You know, this particular morning I hadn't checked in and, you know, he'd been trying to call me, tried to call me and didn't get in touch. And when I finally did answer the phone, he was irate and, and, and flew over to my house and started accusing me that I had had someone else there um, that particular morning. The more that I tried to, you know, implore that, 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 that wasn't true, the more irate he got. And yeah. he then um, came over me and, 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 and accused me again that I had lied and said to me that I knew this was too good to be true. And then slapped me so hard that I saw stars. And I remember the this, this sting of the slap. I remember cradling the slap. I remember him storming out and me sitting there, tears streaming down my face, no sound, just yes. bewilderment, like this just happened. I can't believe this just happened because I immediately equated it with what my mother had went through. Again, I don't have a term for it. I don't, I just know it's a bad thing. And I immediately said, you know, maybe about five minutes later, I'm like, no, 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 no. Because I kept questioning myself, what did I do to make this happen? What could I have done to not make it happen? And I caught myself and I said, no, 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 no. I didn't do anything. Uh, I told the truth and I'm done um, because I'm not going to be her, right? I'm never going to be her and I'm done. Uh, unfortunately, he... I'm curious about that because you're, you're, you're brilliant. You know, I, I, in reading your book and hearing the interviews, like you, you're a brilliant lady and you spent two decades plus witnessing this happen to your mom and every single time saying, not me, not me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And here you are now with this guy, you've just started dating and yeah, you, you love him, but not with capital L's yet, more like butterfly right. love. Right, right. And he slaps you, slams the door, walks out, the stars finally fade and you have this reckoning. Why, why, why not keep that door shut? Why not never let him back in? Yeah, you know what? And this is something that I I I I like to explain with generational generational trauma as, as it relates to domestic violence. When you are born into an abusive household, you don't see the beginning. You don't know what red flags your mom missed. You don't know what bad beha trait behavior your father picked up and, and is, is now spewing onto to the person that they say that they love. So although I knew, right, and I, and, I, and I unequivocally said to myself for many years that this would never be me, I missed that part. I didn't know what that looked like. I never knew what 
sort of warning signs that I should have been looking out for. And when he came with those behaviors and the slap happened, I didn't understand that all it really took, and which is what I try to explain to people now, is that it doesn't matter where you're, you're, you're from, your economic status, where you live, your race, none of that. If you don't understand what the warning signs are of this issue, to be able to recognize them, plant them in your brain and be on alert at all times for those types of behaviors, well, then all it takes is a really nice apology, which mm. abusers are very good at. Narcissists are very good at. They want to make you understand that, look, I messed up, but in part, it's your fault. So the guilt tripping starts from very early on. I'm never going to do it again, but I love you so much. This is what drove me to do this. So when you hear those things and you don't recognize that they are placing and deflecting blame onto you, right? What are you going to do? Right. You're going to take ownership of some of that guilt because here's this person pouring their hearts out to you. Uh, and they want you to, to, to help them. Look, I need you to help me fix this. Not understanding that you don't have any control over their behavior and whether or not they're going to change. So this apology that he came with to me uh, in the form of two dozen purple roses, which was one of my favorite colors back then and still is, tons of voicemails that he left begging for me to call him back, uh, hearing the remorse in his voice when I did call him back. I listened to all of that and I took all of that in and I did understand what he was. I was trying to understand very much what he was going through and why not give him a chance? It was only a slap, right? My mother went through way worse and this thing that she went through, that's nothing compared to what I'm going through or what I just happened to me because I have control or that's what I thought I, yes. I believed. And I didn't. The, the 24 flowers and the voicemail messages and that beautiful little smile on guy's face, eventually it works. But the promise of it will never happen again does not work. Absolutely. And not only does it not work, it gets progressively worse and worse and worse. He begins to push you away from your friends and family. There's Isolation. a story. But ultimately, the, the inflection point, the turning point ultimately in your story is when he finds a picture of an old boyfriend in you. Mm. Would you, would you yeah. share to the degree that you, you're willing what happened? And, uh, and then yeah. Yeah, so this this particular night, the last night that I was beaten physically, uh, broken down emotionally and verbally, um, I was now living in a studio apartment where, you know, somewhere that he would frequent. And he walked in and I could tell by his body language, right? That body language that not everything is not okay. And whatever it is, they're going to take it out on you. I saw that. I understood that. And my only question, much like when my mother would get beaten by our father, was how long was this going to last? And for what, right? What's the reason? And so he walks into the studio apartment. It's very long. It's just a kitchen, a long bedroom and a bathroom. And he comes in and he says to me, um, you know, who's been here? The typical accusations, because he was always looking for something to catch me on, right? And, um, you know, again, so I, an excuse to start the attack. And so he starts rummage, rummaging through some books and out pops a picture from a very old book. It was actually Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan. 
and the pitcher pops out and he picks it up and he looks at it and he gets very red in the face and then he flings the pitcher at me and storms off into the kitchen. And I picked up this picture and I died inside because as you mentioned, it was a picture of me and a then old boyfriend in Trinidad, hugged up on the sand on the beach, looking very happy. And he's in the kitchen and I hear him rummaging through the drawers. It almost, I, I knew that he was rummaging, looking for something to hurt me with. Um, and I got very scared because I'm saying to myself, he's going to kill me here tonight because uh, he had never, ever looked for a weapon before. Um, this would be the first time. And when he came back into the room, he came back in with a kitchen knife and he said, I'm going to slit your throat and I'm going to, uh, nobody's going to find you uh, for, for days or weeks. And I believed him because at this point you mentioned, I, I am very isolated from family and friends. I'm not even speaking to family and friends on his BS um, because I wanted him to understand it was him and only him that I loved. And uh, he then straddles me on the daybed as much as I'm trying to explain. It's an old picture. It moved with me for many years. I didn't even know it was still in there. Um, he just got more and more, more, more angry. And he put the knife up to my throat enough to let me know that he could slit my throat at any time. And he started, so holding the knife to my throat, striking me with the other, um, punching me with the other spitting in my face, um, strangling me. He would put the knife down uh, at some point, strangle me. And, and at points I would pass out and then come through with him punching me in the upper torso um, or about the body. And so as crazy as it sounds, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm laying there and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I don't want the neighbors to hear that this is happening to me. Any attack that had happened even before that, I would, you know, sort of dismiss it. Oh, I heard, you know, ruckus coming from, I I would say, oh, you know, the football game, you know, he gets really loud with the football game. And that's really what you, what you, what you heard. And so this particular night, same thing. How can I whimper as quietly as I can from the blows? Because it, it this is the worst that I'm feeling from him um, physically. Um, he would stop and then pace the floor and then yell profanities, call me out my name straddle me again, the punching would resume, the knife would be held up against my throat. Uh, and this started at about nine o'clock the night before and went till about two o'clock the next morning. And yeah. when he was done, he, he laid in my bed next to me, like nothing had happened and fell asleep. And I laid next to him because where was I gonna, where was I gonna go? Who was I gonna call? Uh, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had anyone. And, um, you know, it wasn't until a couple hours later that I, I felt the sharpest pains from any of the attacks that he had unleashed on me. And I said, okay, Laverne, I've watched enough Law and Order and Lifetime to know that something's incredibly wrong with your body. It's either you get up and you get yourself help. I lived, you know, maybe two, two lights away from a nearby hospital, or you stay here and wait for him to wake up and start again. And that was the first time that I realized, okay, you're, you're, you're scared to death, but you got you to gotta choose yourself. Yeah. Um, so I did. And I, I, I got quietly dressed. I limped down my stairs um, of the building and I, and I caught the first cab. I lived directly next to a train station. So there were always cabs. I hopped in the first cab that I saw. Um, and at the first light, it was red. This is about almost five o'clock in the morning. He realized that I was gone and and jumped in his car and followed. So the rest of this, you know, like the whole the whole story, as you've read, plays out like a lifetime movie. But this moment, no it was it it was almost like okay, 
I either get to live or die here uh, because I'm in the cab and uh, he pulls up next to the cab yelling for me to get out. Where are you going? I need to talk to you. I mean, I just really irate. And I said to the driver, I'm begging you, if it's the last thing you do, even if you have to run the red light, run it, please. Because if you let me out of this cab, because I'm thinking this guy is seeing all this drama. He doesn't know me. He probably doesn't want to get hurt. Again, that whole mindset of nobody's going to intervene to help you. Um, I'm saying to myself, he's going to put me out of his cab. And I said, you know, if you have to run the red light, please. He looked at me, he looked at my abuser and he ran the light. When he ran the light, the, my abuser then started drag racing him in this, these, these two lanes. When he saw that the cab took a left into the hospital, which was the next light, he then sped away. I didn't understand that he believed that I was going to say something, that I was going to speak up and tell his secrets. I didn't understand any of that then. Um, but I went into the ER with all the shame that could ever, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, I was working an entry-level job in corporate America. I was going to a, a Suffolk University at nights. There was, there was no way that I wanted anybody to connect me to this thing that I looked upon as weak and, 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 and downtrodden. I wanted nobody to connect me with that. I was being, I was on my way to being more like my father, the guy who presented in public. I didn't want to be looked upon as this thing who at the time, very little, looked upon, looking, looking upon as my mom who was weak and uneducated. I didn't want to be associated with that. Yes. And so I lied initially to the ER nurses saying that I had fallen in the shower. But when they, they ran the x-rays, the ER doctor came into the room and said, who did this to you? because these injuries aren't consistent with you falling in the shower. And uh, I clammed up initially, but eventually I opened up and said that my, my ex, you know, I understood that now I had gotten to my breaking point that I was never going to return because if he could beat me like that, then the next time I'd be dead. That, that was that, that is what was next. And I, I, again, I was finally choosing myself. So I fessed up and I said, my ex-boyfriend did this to me, but I am begging you do not call the police. I don't want anybody involved. I just want to go home. Still not understanding. Uh, how could I? Cause I didn't understand the dynamics of this issue that that was the most dangerous time for me. This mm -hmm. moment where I decided that I wanted to leave this thing, um, would send him into a frenzy and it, and it certainly did. Laverne, I mean, I, I've read your book, I've read it twice, heard you interviewed several times. So I know the stories and still I'm just sad for you and mm. broken for what you experienced and the scars you still bear physically, yeah. internally, and to recognize that you're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. you know? For sure. This is it, for it's sure. everywhere and, and next door. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's and so we'll, 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 we'll finish with that idea in a moment. But what is so surprising is, again, this, this girl who grew up knowing not my life, I will not become this, hmm. becomes this. The doc on his knees in front of you says, I know this did not happen in the shower level with mm -hmm. me. Finally, someone believes you, loves you, yeah. you mm -hmm. and empathy and can serve you. And you say, no, I got this. So we could spend a lot more time talking about... <laughs> the delay this, and when finally you began to uh, create the, the restraining order. Yes. Yes. For those who might uh, be in the situation themselves, what are the lessons that 
they can learn as someone receiving the abuse. And for those of us who might hear whispers of some noise coming from the apartment next door, from the neighbor down the street, or we've heard, yeah, sometimes he gets a little hot uh, on a Friday night. Yeah. Or on the other side, looking across the fence at that family, what can we do? So first, for those of us who've we're experiencing abuse. What's your encouragement for us? You said it, you're not alone. Um, there's a whole community of sur thrivers is what I like to call us that is just waiting and to envelop you with love and support. Um, but that does not start, that part of your journey does not start until you've reached your breaking point. So as much as I'd like to sit here and say, again, make it sound black and white, like, you know, you should just pick up and leave. I understand that that's not the case, that there is many, are many levels to what leaving could and should look like. Um, you know, you might have kids and you stay for them. You might have uh, financial restraints that, you know, keeps you from, from moving at, at any given point. You might have family members that he's threatened that if you dare make a move that would 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 come to harm or you know probably won't because it's just all talk to keep you in that seat of fear um, or a pet right family or a pet um, you know there are many reasons why you stay I I get it um, but the onus responsibility is on your abuser. You do not have to walk around with their secret, their shame, or their guilt. That all belongs to them. So the moment that you decide that you're going to give all of that back to who it belongs to, that's when the journey begins. That's when your breaking point has been reached. You've had enough. And that's when you pick up the phone and you call a, a domestic violence agency in your area. But not until you're ready. Um, even for people on the outside looking in, as upstanders, you cannot make a victim move now you can't say just get up and go they have to be they they alone know what their situation looks like and when it's semi-safe for them to even make a move so for being an upstander provide support offer it a thousand times find out what the domestic violence agency is in your area provide that information to them if they have kids offer to watch the kids. If you wanna go with them, go with them to the intake appointment. Mm. Um, find out what types of services the domestic violence agency inputs, because that may be something that your the, the, the friend, the family member is looking for, but they don't know it exists. So be that resource, provide um, that support. Um, and, and, and for the person that knows nobody <laughs> experiencing this, you too can be part of the solution. If you ever see something, you must say something. And I'm not saying now I, I'm on the other side and I know what those people back in my neighborhood, um, you know, from the outside looking in, the men who I wished would intervene and did nothing. Um, now I understand some of what their mindset was. But you now are educated. You now have a glimpse into what this issue looks like. So when you're, you're driving by or you're working, you're walking past someone in the, in the grocery store and you see something going on, call the police. I'm not asking you to get physically involved because you don't know what the abuser has on them. It could be a gun, it could be a knife. You get hurt, or you, you get killed. Guess what? The victim is going home with the abuser and you've solved nothing. Um, so always, always get yourself safe first. 
and call the police every single time. You hear the ruckus going on, call the police every single time. Let the owners be on the police to do what they need to do and make sure that the victim gets hurt because a lot of the police, um, uh, uh, a lot of police stations are now trained on the issue of the abuse and they understand how to recognize physically yes. and emotionally and even sometimes verbally what the, 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 the signs of domestic violence are enough to pull the victim out of that situation and at least start to get them help. So again, call the police every single time, no matter where you are in the world. That's Laura, the least how, that you could do. How common is this? You know, the majority of our listeners are here in the States, but there's more than a hundred nations tuning in. How mm -hmm. common is this around our country and around the world? In the States alone, one in every four women will be abused in their lifetime. One in every three teens and one in every seven men. And John, those are the reported numbers. Um, so I, I absolutely know that it's much higher than that. But those are the stats that we have, right? In the Caribbean, it's one in every two. Wow. Uh, and even worse for, for teens. We often think when it comes to our children, which is the book, The Legacy He Left Me and why I decided to call it that. The issue of abuse, the cycle of abuse repeats itself from very early on. So we think, I have my child. She's never seen me get physically hit. She'll be okay. Um, she's only four. She doesn't understand. Uh, she's 14 now. Eh, we moved on and it's all good. No. Children go to school and they have eight hours of their life there. Uh, without you in it. For the kids that have never seen you get physically hit, even that's the case, if that's the case, they children are very smart. And so even though they see you and dad go into a room, when you leave their presence, you look happy, go lucky, things are great. When you come out from that room, you look sad, anxious. All they have to go with three, four, five years old is their imagination. Mm. So they already know that daddy is a monster because daddy did something to mommy in that room, if, whether or not it was physical or not, to change their caretaker. And they're going to grow with that and assume much as they get older. Children that witness abuse, they're going to go on to perpetuate attitudes and behaviors that you have passed down to them with their eyesight. They can see it. We often tell our kids, don't do what I don't do what I do, do what I say. But that's not that's not the case. Children inherit these behaviors. How often, how often do we grow up to be older women and we say, oh my God, I just that's that's my mother. I just did what my mother did. Like my God, Jesus yes. Christ, that's my dad. I just did what my dad would do. Right. These are the things that inherently stay with us, whether or not we like it or not. Our subconscious reveals those things when we're in college. Right. So you hear on college campuses, you know, sexual assault is high, you know, DV or you see these stories on Dateline where she was going to school and, you know, uh, the boyfriend was so possessive. And just, where did they think they took those behaviors from? It came from what they know from home. So when they go out and they start to develop these relationships, that's exactly what's going on. And whether or not it, 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 it comes out in the form of becoming a victim, like myself, or an abuser, like a couple of my brothers, right? Five of us, we all lived in the same house, but we all took away 
inherently the subconscious behavior that I, that was passed down by a father, the legacy he left me. He mm. wanted so much for me. He wanted so much academically, so much, uh, so much, you know, articulate. He wanted all of that. But what was left was this thing of becoming a victim that I thankfully um, are now on the other side of. Laverne, you were abused. You were beaten to an, an inch of your life. You were stalked. We won't even go into that story by, by yeah. this time for a while. Um, you shared a, a scene that seems like it would be in lifetime, except it would be unbelievable. So like they yeah. wouldn't even put it in the movie because it's ridiculous. No one's going to follow. No, she gets followed to the hospital. Give me a break. It's not believable. Yeah, but yeah, but it did. In the letters on the car and everything else that followed you behind, even when you ended the relationship permanently. How long before you finally came out of an apartment or out of work or out of school and you just had freedom? Like not hmm. only freedom from him, but freedom from the scars and the fear that he could be around the next corner. Mm, it took some time. Um, and it certainly didn't happen overnight. So uh, a myriad of things over the, I would say maybe a couple to three years um, where uh, it entailed therapy, uh, going back to church, which, I, you know, I lean on my faith a lot. Um, and was able to get back to that, the business of that, uh, because that was something that was taken away during the relationship. Um, you know, re-engaging with, with family and friends that really loved me, that I distanced myself from because of him. Um, you know, I think all those things married together got me to a, a, a safe space that I uh, not only believe that he would not come after me, I think uh, after, you know, some months where I realized that the restraining order was working, um, that I, you know, I understood that I needed to get back to the business of self. I was lost in this relationship. The, the, the very essence of who Laverne was and for many other victims in these relationships gets lost. Um, you are literally living to please and, and, and take care of and make sure um, that another person is okay. And you lose yourself over a period of time. And I think those first three years really were a magnitude of how I got back to the business of me. But what, if, we talk, if we're talking about how long it took for me to even really come out and say the why or even speak up about what I had really gone through during that time. It, it, it was a cumulative um, 10 years, mm. 10 years before um, I, I, I tearfully related to, to anybody else, a judges panel really during a pageant that I had been there to take part of um, about the about the why because it was the first time that I was asked why domestic violence why would why why would you pick that as a platform and with tears running down my face my head held down in shame right that whole that whole level of shame coming back um I I recounted a little bit about what my mom went through and then a little bit about about what I went through and uh I ended up winning the, the beauty pageant that that local leg and had to go on to to the nationals in LA and ended up winning that too and that's where the drive for this work really started because during that judges portion of the first pageant, I, you know, after I shared, I, I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm never going to win this thing because this person, they, this contestant is like, she can't control herself physically. 
Um, so they, she can't represent us. And I looked up and other judges were crying too. <laughs> Women that were like well-dressed yeah. and put together and poised. And, and then they subsequently came up to me as I was getting myself together to exit the room and said, me too. Yes. And I said to myself, oh my God, if they, if they are admitting to this thing have happened to them too, who else? And that's really what lit a fire to even begin this work, John, was that year of, of advocacy using the title um, as, you know, with my platform. Once the year was up with those two titles, I knew that I was not a pageant girl, but I really wanted to continue this work. And that's where the drive and the, the, the yearning for Love Life Now, which was then founded um, the year after, came. And here we are uh, 11 years later in next month. I love the fact that a dare from a friend brings you to the front stage of the New England beauty contest, essentially. Seriously. And, and then you go to LA and you win. And now the work continues because of the dare. It's just yeah. a beautiful, beautiful story. So the final question before we wrap up with what we call the Live Inspired Seven is we, we've talked a lot about abuse. That leads, though, to brokenness. Mm. So for our listeners, whether they've been abused or they've just been broken. Through, through life, you know, sometimes life will just break us down. And maybe mm. some of us don't feel worthy, and we don't feel lovable, and we don't feel like we're enough. What, what encouragement or advice would you give those of us struggling today with with self worth? Gosh, just so many steps that you can take um, to get to a place where you feel, I, I, I don't even want to say to a level of where you feel like you are enough, because there are some days that you're going to still feel that in this journey. But to start, you have uh, to admit that you are worth it. Um, and that positive affirmation repeated daily, I'm worth it, I'm worth it, I'm worth it, um, is so powerful because many times, and I'll, I'll speak specifically to women here, that you know, when we're growing up, we're taught from very early on that we are fixers. We're supposed to be fixers. We're supposed to keep the family together. Um, you're supposed to get married and settle down and you're supposed to just do everything you can to just quote unquote, make it work. Um, and uh, we're taught to settle from very young. And so you, you already have this idea um, from many households when you're coming out on into your own that you know, you're not supposed to ask for much or be worth much, right? You're just supposed to be something that is there. And, um, you know, if you've gone through trauma or, or any life experience, I think the first thing in admitting that you are worth it, um, you know, that's a start. Uh, there are many steps. So you can start journaling. A lot of the times, even if we're in abusive relationships at the moment, um, or have gone on to the other side, start journaling, start talking about what today was like. Um, you know, oftentimes journaling gives you a picture of what the beginning looks like if you're in a relationship you 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 talk about all the butterflies all the things all the, you know everything that you would hope for towards the middle you know again as it relates to abuse it gets dark and you can see that change if you right and so sometimes it needs to be in black and white yes. um for folks for 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 it to to be pronounced to folks and again that, that can be really across the board um you know, keeping, if you, if you believe in something, someone, keep faith, 
um, you know, it's hard to say that when you're you're going through the the ebbs and flows of life. But you know, lean in on your faith. That that really helped me. Um, you know, especially to, at the end, realizing that I had stepped away from something that was so innate to me. So never lose that. Mm. Um, boundaries is a big one. Boundaries. I don't care if you're in a friendship. Uh, relationship, <laughs> uh, family ship, <laughs> boundaries is a big one. If you create boundaries from the very beginning, and sometimes that's really hard for people because they're so giving of themselves and their time and whatever, um, you know, creating boundaries um, is really a way to, to be able to keep toxicity out. Um, it's a way to keep your peace sane, right? Um, and still viable. So um, creating boundaries, volunteering, Gosh, I don't care what kind of day you're having. If you believe in a cause, again, it can be domestic violence awareness, it could be sexual assault, it can be anything. If you reach out and you're able to lend your time to be able to do something for someone else that you know is going to make cause a ripple effect in their lives, do it. Volunteering always perks. Um, I've heard from many people, not just myself, it always perks their, their, their day up. And that's a start. If your day has been perked up, then you want to do more. You want to find out more. Um, so those are just some of the things. There are many that I can, I can go on, but just creating that level of self-worth. Um, it, it's no magic pill and there's no um, sort of one thing that works for everybody. Um, leaning, lean into what brings you joy and never lose that. What is personal to you? Um, and hold on to it um, is what is what my advice is, because, you know, again, no matter what you've gone through in life, um, you know, at the core, what makes you tick. Um, and so if you can lean in on that, then then you're in a really, really, really good space. The legacy he left me, the author is Laverne J. Gordon. It's a beautiful book. And as I wrap up with the author of that book right now and the author of that life right now, I do have seven questions that tether all of our Live Inspired podcast guests together. So Laverne, the very first is what has been the most influential or most impactful book you've ever read? Oh, wow. Um, Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan, still today. <laughs> and not just because the bookmark was an old boyfriend, huh? Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> what what was it about all. that book that you found so moving? Well, first of all, it was, I, I think it was the first um uh, adult fiction uh, I had read, and it really opened up my eyes um, to the very, very many facets of what relationships could look like. Before that, I had only had one sort of, you know, again, Hallmark movie uh, sort of stereotype as to what relationships could be, right. and reading that book really opened my eyes, um, and she became one of my favorite authors um, down the line. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up in Trinidad that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Hmm. I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I always had a mouth on me. <laughs> I think I could always, you know, voicefully speak up um, yes. in play, um, you know, playing with kids around the neighborhood. I wish I had owned in on that more. Uh, even for as a as a as a scapegoat to what I was experiencing at home, I wish I had, you know, used my voice more. Um, mm -hmm. Something that I I do, you know, off the cuff today. No uh, I wish that I, I had owned it on that more as a child because I had 
I did have, I did have a voice. I just didn't realize that it, I, I could use it for my own benefit. If your home or your apartment caught fire and you haven't, everybody out, families out, animals are out, but you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What's the one thing you would run in and save? There's a bin, a storage bin under our bed. It's flat and goes under the bed um, with uh, pictures. Um, very many pictures that I've taken over the years of our children and, mm. and our family and my husband and I. I am married uh, 10 years this past uh, August. And uh, we have two beautiful children. And I, um, there would be that. Mm. Memories don't live like people do. Uh, they go on and on and on and on. And, uh, you know, when we were children, we we didn't have a lot. My mother was in, you know, so, you know flight, fight or flight mode um, for the most of her life. And, you know, so we, we don't have a lot of memories as, as children, picture-wise. And I've always vowed that that would be different for, 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 for my children and my relationship, that I would document, um, you know. And so I would grab that. I would grab that bin for sure. Beautiful. And Carson, I mean, we, we, we did not even whisper the man's name, but he seems like a <laughs> stud, great guy. We'll have yeah. him back and have a whole podcast just about him. But this isn't about Carson. We're going to keep moving forward. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Wow, that's a really good question. Wow. My, my, my aunt who is now deceased, she passed away from uh, uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, and, and, my, and, and my father, I think I'd have to put him there too. There were so many unanswered questions that I would really love to have an honest question, an honest uh, conversation about. Um, I probably wouldn't get the answers that I'm looking for because he 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 didn't he came from a family um, where abuse was very prevalent and obviously married those traits with his own life um, and and passed it down to his children and so it was this vicious cycle and so I don't even think he understood um, you know and but but I would love to I would love to, to to chat with him my mother always says despite everything he he passed away in 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 2000 two, I think. And, uh, you know, my mother still to this day says, if your father could see you now. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, yeah. And she remarried. She also remarried. There was so much beauty in, in your book and so much trauma and tragedy. One of the quiet tragedies is you only had three that you can recall conversations with your dad. Mm, like that. Yeah. I saw my dad last night for dinner. And although he's he struggles with Parkinson's disease, so our conversations aren't robust anymore. Right. I can see and be heard and love my dad all the time. And it's just, I take it probably way too for granted. You had three conversations, none of them too deep. And I look forward to your fourth awesome. as well. What's the best advice you've ever received? My sister, actually, my old, my my only sister, she, she said to me many years ago, she said, um, when you you have to understand that your your marriage is between you and your husband. And though we are related as family, biologically, um, your family is your family. Um, and you always must do what's best for them. Don't involve the noise from uh, others uh, also uh, as it relates to that. Uh, really get down to the onus of, of, of the issue between you both. And, mm. Yeah, so 
I, I've, 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 I've taken that and I've married it with other things, but I think that to me was one of the best, uh, um, pieces of advice that I could have ever gotten in the beginning. Um, and I still, I still, it, it always, you know, it, she, she married it with a, a verse from the Bible, you know, where, when you, when, when you leave your house, you must cleave to your wife or your husband. And, um, I've, I've really taken that to heart. Um, so, and, and it's worked. <laughs> if you could go back in time and whisper some encouragement or advice or wisdom to yourself at age 20, what advice would you give yourself? Trust your instincts. Mm. Trust your gut, trust your instincts, listen hard with it. Don't, you don't have to make decisions based on it per se, but just listen, understand, it. go back, sit with it. I wish I had that. I wish I had a lot of that around that time. And I, and I, I just simply didn't. Laverne Gordon, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I'm still standing. <laughs> the song by Elton John, if you have a chance, so if you don't, if you don't know it, go listen to it. It just, it's just well, a little literally a commercial break. I am still standing. It's a great reminder. And my friend, not only are you standing, you're, you're, your shoulders are back and you're dancing forward with a beautiful yellow dress on. Ah, yeah. I just thank you for your work and your words and your life and the fact that you are still dancing. It's a it's an impressive accomplishment. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. My friends, that is Laverne Gordon. She's the author of The Legacy He Left Me. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. Let's live inspired. Well, my friends, as we wrap up this podcast and get ready to step either into the next one or into the day in front of us, I do have a question for you. So what legacy are you leaving to those you love? Through your actions, through your words, through your scars, through your brokenness, through your healing, through your prayers, through your life, what legacy are you leaving to those that you care for? You heard today from Laverne on the legacy that he left her. She's, of course, referring to both her dad and her first boyfriend. That's a legacy they gave her. But she's now leaving a radically different legacy for her family and for those that she loves. If you are interested in learning more about rising from the ashes and ensuring that not only your life is on fire with possibility, but so are the lives of those that you care about, let me remind you and introduce you to one of our most popular and most downloaded podcasts, of all time. His name is William Paul Young. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, you may have read it, The Shack. And Paul joined us early in the journey of the Live Inspired podcast, episode 19. He talked about moving through the trauma of a very broken childhood, the difficulties that he faced afterwards, the mistakes that he made, and ultimately the grace that changed his life. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I think if you listen to it, it will be one of your favorites too. You can find it anywhere that you check out the Live Inspired podcast at episode 19, or you can journey with me right now online to johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. And while there, just check out William Paul Young, episode 19. You're going to love it. My friends, I thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And I thank you for knowing, as I do, that the foundation is firm. 
the past doesn't necessarily have to negatively define you, that the headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Achilleans get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Achilleans were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Achilleans who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.